Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Eilat Fishbach. Uh, just to recap, Dr. Eilat Fishbach is the author of the phenomenal book, Get It Done. It's all about the science of motivation and how we can use it to help ourselves get more done. She's also a behavioral scientist at the University of Chicago, and we are discussing motivation. We're talking about where motivation comes from, why it's so incredibly difficult to hold on to, and what we can do to improve it in our lives so that we can find the energy and the commitment we need to do the things we know we should be doing. And I know that that's something you can relate to. I can too. I struggle constantly with finding the motivation to get things done, especially those things that I'm just not that excited about. I'm just not that into in this very moment. I struggle to make it happen. And so in this part of the conversation, we're going to keep going into that question of where motivation comes from and how we can use it in our own lives. So with that said, get excited because this is Tiny Leaps, Big Changes. Have you ever heard of the sunk cost fallacy? It's this weird thing we do where just because we've spent time on something, we keep doing it. You've probably done this yourself. You're in line at the post office and the line is really long, but you've already been there for 10 minutes and it seems to be moving, so you stick with it. Even though you know that if you came back tomorrow, maybe the line wouldn't be so long. This is something we all do, and it's one of the most fascinating things that humans do once they've built commitment to an activity. And the funny thing is that sunk cost fallacy might have some implications about how we change our lives and how we add new habits to our life. So I wanted to ask Dr. Eilat Fischbach about the sunk cost effect and more specifically about how our own perception of our commitment to something can help drive our behavior around that thing. Uh, yes, well, we, uh, you know, we have some nice demonstration of uh, that actually when things go wrong. So if we think about the sunk cost effect, okay, the sunk cost effect is when we work on something just because we already worked on it. Okay, like it, it's when we uh, uh, don't uh, end bad relationship because, you know, I already invested so much in that relationship. I might as well continue investing or... Uh, you know, when uh, uh, we uh, don't get rid of bad investment uh, uh, because we already we are already invested. And we often highlight that as a mistake. Obviously, we, we call it a, a fallacy. Uh, but it suggests that our healthy psychology is such that the more we do something, the more it feels right, the more we want to continue. And 
on the positive side, it suggests that often the, the way to get to do something is simply by doing it. Okay? Start doing it and, you know, don't even ask yourself when you just start how much you like it. Just do it. Okay? And, yeah. and after a while, look and do the evaluation. Is that the right thing for me? Yeah, so it's sort of you build up the time or effort investment first so that you you're you're already sort of committed to it. You're already involved with it. And then when you do the analysis, it it seems like maybe that's coming from a, a more involved excuse me, a more informed place. Yes, exactly. And you know, I write a lot about the role of having fun and feeling that something is right and enjoying what you do, but it's often not our immediate response. We recently uh, published a study with uh, uh, improvisation with uh, in, uh, Second City here, the famous improvisation uh, uh, club in Chicago. And what we found is that when we tell students in the very first class, these are not famous actors, these are people like me. When we tell them in the very first class that their goal is to feel uncomfortable, they are more engaged. Okay, They are more likely to do it and they're taking more risks. Well, why is that? Because if you have never done improvisation, you are going to feel uncomfortable. It will take a few times to feel right. And when you embrace this, when you actually seek out this discomfort, you can engage in it and get to the point where you start to enjoy it. It feels good. So you also talk about another, um, I don't know if it's a fallacy or, or just something that happens a lot. Uh, and I can't remember the name right now. So maybe you can help me out here. It's when you, uh, let's say that you wanted to eat a certain number of calories in a day and you go over by 100 or 200 or whatever it is, uh, you then feel as though, well, what's the point of, like, I've already screwed up. Like, why why not just go all the way? Like, what, <laughs> you, you talk about that, and I found that fascinating. Are you trying to get me to say what the hell effect? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I could not remember the name of it, but that's also an additional bonus. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, uh, this is the effect where you uh, you can get too attached to your target, and so once you you figure out that you're not going to get to that desired number, you just give up on the entire goal. Like uh, in a way, uh, if today is ruined, then it doesn't matter what I eat, and it doesn't matter how much I exercise because today is already ruined, and we are starting the count uh, from uh, tomorrow. And and when you highlight it to people, they they smile like they understand that this makes no sense, right? Mm -hmm. This doesn't make sense that I'm going to like double on the dessert because I'm already over my uh, the calorie counting uh, uh, goal. Uh, obviously, there is no real meaning to how many calories you eat in a day. It really matters how healthy is the food that you eat today and tomorrow and for the rest of your lives. Uh, but because people tend to set these targets and these sub goals, uh, they tend to give up and say, whatever, okay, just take, forget about it for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. And it's interesting because it doesn't make any sense at all, but I would be willing to bet like I would put actual money that everyone listening to this can think of themselves doing this exact thing. Why, why, why are we such idiots? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, well, uh, partially because we, we care about targets. 
and uh, partially because uh, we uh, give up to temptation. We somehow, uh, uh, you, you know, like most of the time, let's say we control our temper. We did some work with people that reported that they tend to get angry uh, easily or like they get angry more than they wanted to. And a lot of time you have it under control and then at one point you just you give up to the temptation and it's just a slippery slope. Okay, once you, you started to be angry, it is much harder to undo that than preventing this from coming. Okay, once you are yelling, to stop yelling is, is harder than to not start yelling in the first place. And and, and, and we know that, uh, that this is uh, harder, therefore it is easier to prevent these behaviors before they occur. One thing you'll notice as you read through this book is that Dr. Fishbach separates things between goals and targets. And a goal is the big thing. That's what you're shooting for, the dream, the aspiration. It might be to climb Mount Everest or to lose 100 pounds or to buy a home. The target is the actual actionable thing because buying a home in and of itself is not an action you can take right now but saving some amount of money is this is a really good framework for better understanding both how goals can still drive action and motivate us and understanding how we can drill that down to the individual behaviors required to accomplish those goals and actually found this to be a refreshing take on goal setting one that moved away from the focus on a specific outcome that i struggled with with the smart framework and moved towards a much more flexible approach to goal setting here's how dr fishbach explained it so you want your goal to be something that you are excited to do and that is not a chore and you, you just nicely summarize what that uh, means. Uh, the goal should be abstract enough so that it describes this state that you want to achieve. It is not just the way to get there. Uh, the goal should be more of the why and less of the how. Now, not so much of a why so that you no longer know how, okay? So when people say, my goal is to be happy, but they don't really know what it means to be happy, like what are the actions that I need to take, okay, the how is not there, then, then this is too abstract. But, you know, having a career is better than uh, applying for a job. Okay. The, the reason is that it describes the why. Why am I going to apply for, for a job? So without getting too much into like fantasies and something that is really disconnected from behavior, try to be abstract. Uh, do not uh, uh, goals tend to feel like a chore. Uh, we further tend to resist them because they, they, they feel too controlling. Okay, if my goal is uh, not to, to smoke or not to drink or uh, not to think about something, uh, well, uh, this is hard. That feels very much like a chore. And also every time that I want to check if I'm still pursuing this goal, I also bring to mind the thing that I'm trying to avoid. Okay, like I, Try not to think about your ex. Well, every time you check to see whether you are successfully not thinking about your ex, well, guess what? You are thinking <laughs> about that person, right? Uh, so, so these goals are very much like uh, a chore. And um, 
you know, people don't like to, to invest in means. So I, I give the example of a study that we ran in which we had people either bid on a book or bid on a tote bag that contained a book. And people were willing to pay more money to get the book than to get the tote bag that included the book, even though the, the tote bag was a better deal. Okay? It was a bag and, and a book. We don't like to invest in in means. We don't like to. So they'd rather just buy the book directly than buy something containing the book. That's fascinating. Yes. We don't like to pay for shipping. We don't like to pay for gift wrapping. We don't like to pay for parking. Uh, and we don't like to uh, study for prerequisite classes. Okay? We, we don't like to work on the things that are not the thing that we want to achieve. Right. It's kind of like... Working on things just for the purpose of then gaining permission to do the thing we actually want feels worse. Exactly. Interesting. So tell us about targets. Uh, once we have this, which, by the way, setting a goal that is both abstract enough to contain and communicate the why, but specific enough to... Uh, uh, whether it communicates or can just directly be linked to the how, that's a that's a tough balance to strike. Um, so, so I 100% agree, but this process is definitely not easy. One thing that I do think can can help is how you break down the target setting component. Could you walk us through that? So I'm not well. Let me say it's not so hard because what you do is basically ask many why questions mm. and stop at the level where you no longer can know how and they go down from from there so okay. it's like you know i'm i'm like i don't know you're you're doing this podcast like why like you know and maybe because you, you want to reach a large audience why do you want to reach large audience right because you have certain like vision that you want to share with them and when why is that and and you know eventually get to like what is the the thing that you are trying to achieve that is uh, still connected to uh, uh somehow uh no i i describe gabriel ottinger's research when i talk about fantasy is just fantasizing uh being at the top of the world, uh, that uh, actually is not going to motivate anybody. Uh, she has research where uh, students were fantasizing getting a job. They were not sending more resumes as the result. It was the, the people that were planning to get a job that were sending resumes or, you know, fantasizing being healthy and, and successful that did not lead people to engage in a, a health behaviors. But I now that I say that, I don't know that I'm answering your question. So I think you'll need to repeat your question. Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Something I'm curious about, I read a, and I could not tell you who it's from, but I read a study years ago that talked about how fantasizing may, um, it may sort of achieve some of the, whatever it is you're trying to get from the pursuit of that thing. I'm curious if, if anything like that has ever sort of come across your desk or if I'm just completely misremembering. I think that you are referring to uh, Gabrielle Ottingen's work, which okay. I just mentioned. Uh, because what happens is that these fantasies are often a substitute to reality. 
Okay. Uh, when people engage in just uh, imagining the, the wonderful life that they could have, uh, they might indulge themselves in uh, uh, this uh, uh, imagining uh, uh, phase. They might uh, enjoy the dream as so much so that they don't bother to wake up and, and, and do something right. about it. Uh, that's the risk when you are. And it's not to say that you should not know where you are going. Okay? You should know your goal you should know where you're heading you should just not indulge too much in just envisioning things happening mm -hmm. so that's a perfect uh, transition back to the original question on how do we set proper targets for those um, uh, abstract goals i would say think about the 80 percent uh, Rule. So something that uh, uh, you have a good chance of uh, achieving, but not every day. And, uh, um, and, you know, if you don't achieve it, then uh, you would still work hard. Like you, you don't want to set a target that too easy because then you will stop working. Uh, one of the, you know, the classic studies in uh, uh, decision uh, research uh, was with taxi drivers. That was uh, uh, in the days of taxi drivers in New York. And uh, uh, what the researchers found is that taxi drivers tend to set a daily goal. So once they reach this amount of income, they stop working for the day, uh, which is uh, suboptimal because on rainy days when there is greater demand, they could have made much more money if they just stayed on the road. And then on sunny days when it's really hard to get to this amount, they are working many more hours. Basically, they are working many hours when it's harder to make money and few hours when it's easier to make money. Uh, that was by my research by my uh, colleague here, uh, Richard uh, Thaler. Uh, saying uh, uh, that... Uh, if you understand that your goal is there to, to motivate you, uh, then the target is really just uh, something to aspire to, and then you might adjust the target. So let me quote another research that we did when we had people set their targets, and we either told them that the task is going to be difficult or not. And what we found is that when they expect something to be difficult, they set more ambitious targets. So to give you an example, when we tell them that this take-home assignment is difficult, they tell us that they will finish it sooner. Okay, They will finish it in two days. When we say that it's an easy assignment, they say that they will take three days. But what are they doing? Okay, they're motivating themselves. Okay, They're telling themselves, well, like this is hard. I should do it very soon, I will tell that lady researcher that I'm going to finish it in two days, uh, which means that I will start in a day. Hmm. So I wonder, there, there's so much more that I want to ask you. Um, but I, as I'm sitting here and you're, you're talking about different studies and the, 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 the various results that have come from them, I find myself just kind of wondering, like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I'm curious what it's like as the researcher, as a part of the team that's doing that research, when that data comes in, is there a sense of shock or was that a part of the original hypothesis? Or, like, how, how do you take that when something that just doesn't make any sense happens? <laughs> Well, so uh, I hope I'm not uh, too disappointing here, but 
you, you know, as a researcher, most of the time you get data that show absolutely nothing. <laughs> like your your daily job is uh, looking at uh, uh, studies that uh, got what we call null effects. So there is really no difference between the two groups, and you are trying to understand what can you uh, learn from uh, a study that in a way failed, that didn't get the results that you uh, uh, predicted. And, uh, and it's often uh, hard. And actually, as a, as a field, as entire social sciences are now just starting to learn from uh, uh, all these failed experiments. How can we learn when we don't get the effects that we predicted? So I'm telling you about the things that worked because obviously those are the things that are interesting and these are the lessons that people want to to know for their lives but in my daily job is looking at a lot of data that i would not bore you with okay there's really just nothing there now when we get these surprising effects we often predict them uh, and if we didn't predict them uh, then we will try again okay we will run another study and now with this prediction uh, to see whether we we get it again because there's also this tendency that when you get something that you really didn't expect it often won't replicate so you kind of want to try again okay now now that i think that maybe this is the case let me see if i can create this again so on okay so two questions there on average what would you say is the ratio of uh research done to actual results that weren't null oh gosh <laughs> you see like a study first the study needs to produce an interesting effect mm. okay uh, then you need to uh, um, be able to replicate that many times and, uh, and and then you need to convince your community that this is interesting so that the people can uh, hear about it so I would cautiously say one in 10, but maybe one in 15. Okay. I, not a ton. That's better than I thought. You, I was terrified you were going to say like one in 100 or something like that. <laughs> well, one in 100 is probably, well, not one in, one in like 20, 30 probably is published. Mm. But this is because, you know, once I get the effect, then now I know I need, I need to make sure that I trust it and I try right. it again, try with a different population. And I just, yeah. What a fascinating world. And I'm kind of just scratching my own curiosity here. So we'll move on. Um, the book is called Get It Done. I have one last question for you. Uh, what is your favorite chapter? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I am not going to commit. I'm going to say that right now when I was completely unprepared to answer this question, I really like the learning from negative feedback. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, don't stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely keep reading. Islet, thank you so much for taking the time to be here, for joining us, for sharing your your overall experience and also for sharing the book with us. Um, the book, again, is called Get It Done. You can find links to it in the description of this episode as well as links to uh, uh, Isla's website and wherever else you can connect with her. Um, any last thoughts before we jump off here? Uh, thank you uh, so much for for having me, and I know I, I hope that people find the work useful. I really uh, 
hope that uh, that what we have learned as, as scientists can become useful for people in their uh, lives. And, uh, and and I will only know in a few years. So I'm kind of sitting at the edge of my chair and, uh, and hoping for the best. Well, thank you so much. And of course, I'm super excited to do whatever I put. Uh, part I can in helping that happen. And for those of you listening, thank you for spending your time with us today. It means more than you can possibly ever imagine. Uh, And with that said, I've been Greg Clunas. And remember that mistakes are not final. Failure is a requirement and all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day. (music) 